Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hello, and welcome to the Publicly Challenged Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Oswald, and I hope you join me on my quest for knowledge to become a better public land hunter angler and forager stick with this and who knows maybe we will learn something together welcome back to another episode of the publicly challenged podcast today we have as our exquisite amazing guest david ian howe the anthropologist and uh he is really into dogs and i am too so um david (laughs) Can you tell us all about yourself and how you got into dogs? Uh, hey guys, how you doing? Thanks for having me. By the way, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it, it's a, a long answer, but I guess the quickest way to express it would be: I had always had dogs as a kid. Um, my aunt was a vet, and I spent a lot of time with her as a kid, so I was just around pets all the time. She always had, I wouldn't say foster dogs, but dog she didn't want to just keep at the shelter overnight or the hospital she'd bring home um and which i'm thinking back on if that's legal or not but she was doing it uh <laughs> and then uh yeah i i loved anthropology history my whole life and then i went to school for archaeology and i realized in archaeology class like oh there's a uh several burials with humans and dogs and i didn't realize that was a you know a thing you could study uh so i went further into school for that in grad school but ended up doing stone tools and hunter-gatherer societies and foraging uh, things like that human ecology and then dogs as like the side thing which has now turned into my my job so Mm. yeah to give you the brief answer okay so um in preparation for this um i had actually told a couple people that i was going to be interviewing you and i said um He's a canineologist because uh, <laughs> I, I had no idea 
what to call you. What do you call yourself? And like, what is your day-to-day work that you do? Yeah. So ethnosynology is my account's name. And that's just like Greek for the study of humans and dogs um, or human dog, I guess, for the Greek word. But uh, yeah, that's just like the study of dogs and human cultural contexts. But my main degrees are in anthropology and specifically I studied prehistoric um, archaeology in North America. So uh, technically I'm like a hunter gatherer specialist. Um, and then stone tools were my actual like hard science that I did. But mainly I study like just how humans interact on a landscape as zoological creatures uh, and factored into that with, I would say stone tools, fire, agriculture, are also dogs. It's a tool that people use. Um, and they're also a creature that interacts on the landscape with people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my day-to-day is I I didn't want to be a professor. That was the next step to do. But I mm-hmm. didn't want to be like a deal with all the bureaucracy of that and then advising and meetings and all that. So I just wanted to teach. So the avenue of, like I grew up watching Bill Nye and Mythbusters and the Crocodile Hunter. And that was some kind of ethereal option to do but like no one knows how to go about that so i just went to school for archaeology first and then luckily social media picked off or just took off right when i graduated so i just kind of stuck with it and i've somehow made it my job uh it was pretty hard still not the most sustainable job but it it's fun and rewarding but Mm -hmm. yeah day-to-day is just editing doing podcasts um researching and yeah Wow, that's cool, man. Yeah. Thanks. So um I've I've seen that uh that you post many times about how dogs are tools, like you just said a minute ago. Mm-hmm. Um that's a really cool concept. Can you elaborate on that a little bit more? Yeah. Uh humans, our adaptation is to uh, you could just classify culture as our adaptation among all the other animals. Um I say birds fly, primates have specialized hands and tails to uh, coordinate through trees and whatnot. But humans specifically is, we use culture, so we take knowledge and share it to the next generation better than other animals do, which is Mm -hmm. why we're, like, that would be our intelligence, I guess. Um, Mm -hmm. But mainly with that cultural knowledge, humans are able to uh, interact and bend the environment to their will. I guess to put it in the harshest terms, but we just are very effective at manipulating the environment. And in the environment in Siberia, where you know it was glaciated, uh, people are isolated. There's not a lot of stuff to forage. You can really only hunt, um, especially in the higher latitudes in general. Wolves and humans are both competing for caribou uh, in Siberia about twenty thousand years ago, or a little earlier than that too, and wolves are something you're interacting with on the landscape so eventually it's just that wolves have to decide you know are we gonna die off or do we just how do we deal with these invasive primates and humans are like well how do we deal with this super effective apex predator that's also here uh and they just kind of combined and there's no you know geopolitical transaction between the two of them that happened it was just a natural coalescence of the two species and much like anything else in the environment you know bending 
a tree to make a shelter or using stone to make tools like dogs we have found a million uses for and i don't think that's talked about enough you know um, mm -hmm. so i hope that answers the question so do you think and and because in my head i see a whole scenario <laughs> and it plays out and yeah. i see a kill site right to where mm -hmm. animals taken down they're butchering it up getting ready to pack it back and here's these wolves and they make a decision. Am I going to fight the wolves? Am I going to kill them? Or just throw them some scraps and see what happens? Yeah. And then it plays out from there. Or other scenario, which kind of makes more sense to me, would be find a den, find some pups, and then rear those pups. How do you think it actually played out? Sure. Uh, <laughs> uh, to put that into three succinct things. So... What you're getting at is uh, the idea of Darwinian natural selection versus human, like Mendelian artificial selection onto the on the wolves, and you could argue that, and I, I don't know the answer, but it would be all three of these to me that, uh, you know, wolves naturally just it was a a way to adapt to the new environment was to be kinder to humans because you knew you could get meat from them or that you could get whatever scraps were left or on the yard of fit or there were scavenging camps or whatnot, didn't have to exert as many calories to hunt or uh, humans are exerting that pressure onto them. Like you're saying, um, and, or, uh, how would I phrase this? The, the wolves that were mean, you probably killed them or, you know, you wanted their pelts or you just, knew to stay away from those ones but the ones that would eventually have the genes that led to be more docile probably knew just leave the humans alone and they'll give us a scrap or we'll come in later so that kind of leads to the the natural selection but also could be the artificial and then i think after a couple thousand years of that happening where humans know like okay rex isn't gonna bite us like that one's fine i would watch out for the one that's missing an ear uh <laughs> Right. He like he has <laughs> been through some stuff. Um after a couple thousand years of that, you're probably more prone to being like, let me just, you know, pick this up out of the den and that way we keep an eye on it. We know it's not it's socialized. Yeah. Um but to outright start from the beginning with that, I don't know. Um I would like to think so. Like someone probably was like, Hey, <laughs> like brought it home, but we don't know. Yeah. Or maybe it was like an Iron Will. Was it Iron Will? Or no, it was White Fang. Where, they, where, yeah. where he finds the, the pup. The pup's caught in the... Was it the pup caught in the trap? What happened? What was it? And he rescued it. And then... Uh, great movie. Haven't, haven't seen it since throwing the kid. rocks at the wolf at the end. Yeah. yeah. Go on. Yeah. Get out of here. Get, get out. <laughs> yeah. So I... So that was a lot of words, but I hope that, that answers it. Yeah. yeah no, no, I that, think it does. I do. Yeah. Yeah, very, but I totally see it playing out both ways. I really do. Yeah. You know? Like, here, let's just throw out some scraps. Let's throw out some tallow and see what happens. Is it going to interact? Mm -hmm. Is it going to want more? Is it going to hang around, or is it going to go away? You know, yeah. that's what I would have done. And as a, a hunter, too, I, I would ask you guys, like, would it be easier for you, like, if you're back in that time, to, to hear wolves killing something, do you think it'd be easy to run up with some fire and scare the wolves away and take it yourself? Or do you think the wolves were doing that to people after they were cutting something up? Because that's mm -hmm. what I don't know. I think the wolves yeah. would definitely attack the people. 
You think so? I think so. Especially if there yeah. wasn't fire. You know what I mean? Yeah. You see something on the ground, more so a cat than like even than than a wolf. Like a wolf is still canines are curious. So and what I found recently, I just started trapping for predators. Um and I found that they're super curious and if things aren't laid out just right, they'll just kinda eyeball it and walk away. They won't touch it because they just feel that something's off. So yeah. everything has to be just right. So I think that they they still probably would attack a human while they were doing that, especially if they were cl- covered in blood or whatever. But they'd be very skittish and cautious. Big cats, on the other hand, they don't care. They'll just jump on your back from behind you. Hmm. Take you down. I didn't know that. But yeah, that's a... Cats scare me in that sense. <laughs> cats, but... cats are freaky. Like I, I just I don't trust cats. Not even house cats. I don't really. I love them, but I just yeah. I know when a dog's gonna bite me. I don't know if a cat's gonna bite. Oh me. yeah, you and don't I, know until it yeah. happens, or <laughs> yeah. if it's gonna claw you. It does. Next thing you know, it's looking at you and giving you like little sad eyes, and then it claws you. There's yeah. no there's no more rhyme or reason to a cat. <laughs> They're just untrustworthy. Have you guys ever seen the um, Nick Swartzen bit about a cat? His uh, mom's cat attacking him out of the blue. No, no, but I know I Nick Swartzen. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you guys gotta. Uh, everybody listening to this needs to go. Just type in to um, Google, you know, or YouTube. Just Nick Swartzen cats. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. Um, but I, I had a question. Uh, going back to the origins here. Um, yeah. So, is it possible? And this is probably a weird thing to suggest, but is it possible that maybe? Um, there was some thought to uh, domestication for the possibility of eating dogs. Yeah. Um, this is something that just isn't talked about a lot uh, for reasons, but the, yeah, a lot of prehistoric dogs up until the last couple thousand years, thousand years are mostly, I wouldn't say mostly consumed, but there's evidence of it all around the world. Okay. Um and the most specific example would be Siberia. There's lots of them. Uh, North America, tons of dogs being eaten. Um, but specifically, uh, Polynesia. Uh, I would imagine if you're sailing out there, all those islands, and they brought dogs with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, they brought chickens and pigs and water and all that too, and sweet potatoes. Like if you run out of food, the dogs also are food. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's probably just a good example of it being an emergency food resource, but also uh, it seems to be, in my opinion, some sort of reverence. So there's endocannibalism in human societies, which is eating people within your group. And then not ecto, but exocannibalism is eating another group. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can classify eating dogs, I would say, as an endocannibalistic thing because they're mm-hmm. part of our society. And that might be done, you know, in some tribal societies, when your grandfather dies, like everyone takes a piece and eats, you know, as part of you or whatever. Uh, Mm -hmm. That's a little weirder to think about as people, but I don't think people thought twice about that as in the past for dogs. Like if you had Mm -hmm. a really good hunting dog, just everyone shared it when it died, um, would make the most sense. Or they were just eating it because they were eating it. Like I don't, but they're always buried ceremoniously. So. Hmm. yeah that's interesting uh, right yeah. yeah and cannibalism is just a weird thing to talk about but expanding it to 
it's just very common throughout human history. Neanderthals ate each other. Uh, yeah. I'm not advocating for it, I guess I should add. But just like <laughs> I think I think uh, interspecies cannibalism is a lot different than than, you know, eating something of a eating grandpa. Totally yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it it's it's so common, man. Um North America for sure, uh ancient Mexico, um, all over for eating dogs. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I I had just read actually that Chihuahuas were um, raised in Mexico predominantly as like a food crop. Interesting. Such a small <laughs> animal that to raise. specifically that's, about that's like yeah. eating squirrels, Clay. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My hard rule is anything smaller than a beagle is a cat. So it's just gonna... yeah, yeah. <laughs> that. Yeah. <laughs> so if that's the case, and the, and they were breeding them specifically for that, where did they get the like the diversity and the genetics if say the first interaction was wolves mm-hmm. where did these other you know species come from what what were they uh like the other kinds of dogs yeah i mean was There's... there a lot of other kinds of dogs or was was there you know like was it just selective breeding over time gotcha yeah it's um that's a the current debate is it one species of wolf or is it multiple species of wolves around the world at different times being domesticated but seems to point to again species is something we just assign to an animal it's a Mm -hmm. it's a construct so just wolves have more wolf-like dna than a bear does if that makes sense so there's some more in between wolf and sorry i should know that uh like (laughs) (laughs) yeah my bad uh wolf and raccoon uh i reckon it's a ex- uh, far extent but between wolf and dog it doesn't just happen overnight so there's at some point there's a you know genetic gradual trend towards dog so you can't really excavate something and say oh this is a dog or it's a wolf it's they're the same species to me um <laughs> and they can all interbreed coyotes wolves jackals dingoes they can all dingoes are just dogs but um they can all interbreed but in terms of the diversification of breeding uh, dogs, there's two big jumps, and I'd say that's the Neolithic. When we start farming and settling down, you now have time to specialize dog breeding. Um, there's probably kennels. You got people that are breeding dogs for hunting, hauling, probably for eating, and then definitely for guarding, um, and then we call it sheep herding. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then later on in the, like the Victorian era is where we see a lot of the like, you know, teacup kind of dogs coming out or the very specific <laughs> breeds that because it became part of the culture to like, you know, there's kennel masters. And I think uh, people that hunt with dogs are called houndsmen, I think, mm-hmm. uh, like in the British sense. So, yeah, when you had time for that is when you start seeing more breeds pop out. But before that, everything kind of looked like a dingo. So yeah. mm. being of portly stature and owning a teacup was definitely a a symbol of wealth. I would say so. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um even in Rome too. Like I mean that that's a far extreme but in uh Rome when I went there there's greyhound statues all over the place like everywhere and uh I looked that up cuz I was you know there for dog stuff. And then if you were fancy and wealthy in ancient Rome, you could afford like a fancy imported greyhound from Egypt. So like it just dogs have always been a status symbol in a sense like that. 
wonder if yeah. they raced him in the Coliseum then. Oh, I'm sure they did. Probably <laughs> made him fight tigers, but <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> or Christians. <laughs> one of, one of, one of them. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, um, so you're saying that they all kind of at one point resembled dingoes, and um, but probably more like. Uh, different color dingoes wherever you go i'm assuming they all kind of have different variations because you have i mean like you you know way more about this than i do but like sure. skull the skull shape is like uh, we have like these different types of dogs with different skull shapes i've come to know right so um you have like my dog's got more of like an elongated um skull and then um a wolf has a really really long skull right so what uh how does that like play into the effect of like, um, like, or, or, or I guess I should say, take this back. What, um, what causes that different skull shape? And then um, how did that happen like naturally? And then what kind of a uh, well, third part here, like North American dogs, when people came here versus like the dogs that already existed, were they totally different? Yeah. Um trying to start that with one uh dogs seem to have a tendency to become the standard yellow coat is what i would describe it as um uh canine dogs for sure keep that standard yellow coat dingoes have it it's just a dominant trait in dogs Hmm. uh so way back when they probably were gray wolf looking coats um just depends on where you are but it seems a result of domestication brings out that yellow um, and like, uh, I guess golden retrievers have that same yellow, uh, but dingoes is kind of what I'm referring to. And then uh, dingoes are just domestic dogs that were brought to Australia that went feral again. So they kind of resorted back to that wolf-like state. Um, Mm -hmm. That's a whole other fascinating topic. Australia has no, giant predators that are canid like except for the tasmanian tiger which a lot of people think european colonists got there and killed all of them but really it was the dingo that pushed them all out to extinction because they just were (laughs) much better at doing the same thing um Mm -hmm. and then the europeans killed the rest of them but uh (laughs) the um to get to that dingoes have it too like the the skull shape that's not wolf-like but it's dog-like Mm-hmm. is called domestication syndrome and mm-hmm. it is i don't exactly know the science behind this but it's called a neural crest cell and when something is domesticated it, you lack those crest cells uh which makes their ears flop and their spots become more coated uh and there's or their sorry their coats become more spotted and their skull kind of shrinks in mm. and the best example of this would be domestic cattle now which are Bos Taurus, I think is the name, were originally Aurochs, the ancient mm-hmm. uh, cow species, but that's all extinct. So we only know domestic cattle. We don't see the wild cattle anymore, but they would have looked the same, just domestic cattle lack the giant horns and things like that. They're less robust looking and they're more docile. But of course, then we can breed into the like, Texas longhorns. We can breed that back. Um or like a husky or a German shepherd, you can breed that wolf back into it. Mm. But uh, it seems that when something becomes extremely bred to be domesticated, it keeps that juvenile trait to it. So 
like a pug. Sheep and <laughs> yeah, like the pug is the the extreme of that yeah. to the point where it looks human, you know. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah like a flat face, big eyes. Yeah. Um, yeah, I I can't remember all the questions you asked there, but I, I hope that it got so. Yeah. Well, so so what? Um, so like North Americans uh, are here for a very long time. I'm right. assuming they. I'm I'm assuming they have those Siberian wolves you know or the descendants of those siberian wolves and then um you know europeans get over here what are the differences that these people are going to see between their dogs gotcha yeah uh the amerindian dog uh also known as the american dingo i think is what it the it's colloquially known as the best example of it is the carolina dog or the carolina dingo and it mm -hmm. looks just like a dingo um and I think when the Spanish got here and the French, they wrote that the Amerindian dogs looked very much like either wolf hybrids or were just that standard dog size, yellow coat looking thing. Um, and those all existed here. They came from that original, you can actually see in Siberia where it shifts towards that original genetic group goes to the Americas, the rest goes to the rest of Europe and Asia, down to Africa. And original domestic dogs they're trading them across the land bridge or however they got to america with them uh but what's interesting is too when the europeans arrived here all of the genetics of ancient amerindian dogs have been completely replaced by european dogs so that shocked me when i saw that study because i would have thought chihuahuas and cholos were still pretty native um, mm -hmm. but they've had enough breeding with european genetic dogs and then you know bred back to look like chihuahuas that at some point that like dna just kind of disappeared and it went back to it's pretty cool it's uh crazy. i mean it's sad but it's cool in the genetic sense um so i guess to answer that question it's all the same species it's all the same animal mm -hmm. which is why they can interbreed so well it's just uh yeah it, it's fascinating in in that sense yeah, yeah. why um or, or not why what what do you think that they thought do you think that there was any writing about how maybe it was a different animal did they think it was a different species when they came to new places that also had dogs uh i know anecdotally cook got to the polynesian islands and wrote down that he was i mean he found it remarkable enough to write it down that that they had dogs out in these islands mm -hmm. um and the Spanish and the French, they weren't exactly sure how Native Americans got to the Americas. Some people figured they had come from Asia or things like that. Other people thought they just were born there too, just like Europeans are born in Europe or Middle East or whatever. <laughs> uh -huh. um, That's what the early Franciscans wrote. But uh, Cook understood, like, these people probably came from Asia. Like, that, it just doesn't make sense that they would just be on this island from time immemorial. So he kind of mm -hmm. understood that dogs were brought with them in that sense too and that's how rats and pigs got to all those islands as well because ah. um yeah because they brought them but the spanish and the english when they got here i'm not sure that's a really good thing to look into actually if they what they thought about the dogs and stuff when they got here but yeah i was just curious you know because yeah. um so meriwether lewis you know had his um had his big dog with him on his journey okay and um and uh as stupid as it is, they did eat I read, though, I, right? They ate what'd his, you say? Didn't they eat his dog? No, they didn't. Oh. Um, he had his dog named Seaman, 
and uh, Seaman was a Newfoundland, I believe. Um, I can't I can't remember what breed, but a huge dog, right? And um, they took it all across the way, and apparently they tried to steal it multiple times. They tried. Um, people offered him like vast amounts of uh, wealth to get this dog because it was so different than any dog that they had ever seen. Huh. So they're you know every tribal land he goes to, people are like. Whoa! Look at that dog. They yeah. wanted, so they wanted to selectively breed it in order to have certain traits. Then, right? Like to to have sturdier pack dogs or larger pack dogs, or I mean, it had to be yeah. a purpose. Yeah, I guess. But <clears throat> um, not I, yeah, you should look right. into it. There's actually um, that's what I was going to say a minute ago. There's a silly book. It's an entire book um, written from uh, about about Meriwether Lewis's dog. Okay. <laughs> there is that uh, in a museum somewhere too, right? Uh, like the, potentially the journal that was originally written by about the dog. Um, I don't know. Yeah, um, I think it is. But but um, I just know that it's funny that there is a you know there's a book not not my favorite book in the world that I've ever read about the Lewis and Clark expedition, but it's entirely about the journey of the dog and like, kind of like from the dog's perspective. <laughs> That's awesome. I'll have to look that up. <laughs> yeah. So um, why can dogs and coyotes mate? Yeah. Dogs are, this gets into that whole species being a spectrum and like mm -hmm. social construct thing, but Everything in the genus Canis can interbreed. It's just everything. Uh, to my knowledge, the main the main players in that thing. So, Canis lupus being the wolf, Canis latrans is the coyote, Canis anthus is like one of the jackals. But again, jackal is just something they attribute to something that's canid like that scavenges is what jackal is. Mm -hmm. um, dog, you the three of us might assume domestic dog, but uh bone crushing dogs are those extinct animals that lived in North America forever ago and they're not dogs really they're more related to what the dire wolf was uh but then mm -hmm. the dire wolf too is also named wolf it wasn't what we would know as a wolf uh gets confusing but the main things in the wolf family would be the uh the sorry the dogs the dingo uh, the ki uh, coyotes and some jackals, and they can all interbreed. So wow. it's because they all are just wolves adapted for different niches, is how I would describe it. Hmm. So okay. I've seen several people point that coyotes are just a natural dog without human interference. Um, they're smaller than wolves, they don't exactly have the same dynamics or prey, you know, the way they hunt. Uh, but they're the same thing, really, just a, a more specialized version of it. Um, and they can all, yeah, interbreed and have viable offspring, which is uh, the main definition of species, I'd say. Like you can, many things can interbreed, uh, but to have viable offspring that can, that aren't mules, that can continue that genetic line would be a species. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um. So how... Yeah, so that that theory you just put out there, um, that that's a viable theory that is is um, out in the ether right now. That um, coyotes are just a natural dog. I've seen it. I can't remember who said it, uh, but I've heard it anecdotally too. Uh, that yeah, 
several times I've heard that coyotes are just a, if you can think of it this way, like a natural dog, you know, uh, the way it's like proposed in the the things that I read. But to trying to think about another way to explain it other than that, just natural wolves or natural dogs, sorry, is what they Said. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean that that actually makes a lot of sense when you think about it. Like a dog is more of an omnivore than a wolf, right? Mm-hmm. And then and then so is a coyote. You know, yeah. the, they're they, they, so, yeah. they both eat like all like carbs, and they're just like yeah. so human, like you know. I've seen trail yeah. cam pictures of coyotes eating apples from an <laughs> okay. apple tree. Yeah. Oh kinda, wow! Kind of cool. Like picking yeah. them off, or it's no, the like or... they fell to the ground and they're scavenging them, eating eating the apples. Sense. Yeah, pretty cool. Yeah, uh, yeah, it makes sense. And they're they're very social. I mean, so are wolves, but like coyotes are loud. So are dogs, and like when they're all together in a kennel and things like that, mm-hmm. wolves aren't as loud together. Um, from I haven't been around too many wolf packs like that far from me, but <laughs> um, <laughs> from what I understand, they're not is they howl and stuff but coyotes yowl and bark like dogs do yeah yep yep um so the dire wolf i gotta know more about the dire wolf i've never really looked into that much so if it's not an actual like canis uh then what is it so there's an extinct line of like dogs in quotes that lived in north america that were kind of in between like a bear and a, a wolf like a just their own canids evolved in the americas which is why there's so many interesting things like that here but they were called bone crushing dogs and they were just big predators that could take on bigger prey that lived here um and the dire wolf isn't like one of the last i mean it just recently died out but the last vestiges of that genetic line that lived here that specialization and it looks just like a wolf in it like its skeleton that's like when they find its bones they're like oh it's just a big wolf and they call it dire wolf but when they did genetic testing something like three years ago or so they found out like oh it is not related to by like millions of years not related to wolves it is related to those uh i can't remember hesper scion i think is what they were called um <clears throat> but the dire wolf it's anocyon or Anosiron deerus is the word. So not instead of Canis deerus, it's Anosiron. Um, so a different genus altogether. And yeah, it just was more effective at, in the lowlands, hunting bigger prey, like bison or bison antiquitous, things like that. Uh, and wolves are a lot more adaptable. So when the climate started warming a lot more and humans got here and the whole mess started, wolves were just more adaptable and could get to the highlands better and still hunt and i guess forage in a sense efficiently so that's why dire wolves died out wolves just mm. went to the mountains and came back when you said so, they died out yeah. recently what are we talking like uh like the Thousands? last ice age oh, okay okay yeah they died with everything else here yeah okay mm-hmm. yeah i should have should have specified <laughs> yeah. that well, yeah. <laughs> recently as in like the last thousand years <laughs> the or, 80s. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well no, um, there's um the la brea tar pits in i guess la brea is the city uh tons of dire wolves in in the pits because all those animals got stuck and would scream so the dire wolves just came to feed on them and then also got stuck and there's like 
if you go visit the entire wall is just direwolf skulls because there's so many of them um you think the tar would preserve them better than that i don't know uh they, preserves have, the bones well yeah. but i don't know about the skin have they found any in like uh marshes or or swamps anywhere that have been like better preserved to where we can actually get like an a, a accurate depiction of what they you know what i mean like what they actually look oh. like um not to my knowledge in the americas i know in siberia the permafrost always melts and there's something with fur on it still and that's cool. um yeah. mammoths and dogs too yeah or wolves yeah um it's also a lot of um mammoth not mammoth sorry direwolf baculums that are like broken in um, <laughs> the the Brea tar pits so it's weird like you can get a glimpse of their sexual behavior because of their broke penis bones um <laughs> and like uh i don't know if that's like kosher to talk about here but no, like good. yeah it's just one of those weird things in science that someone was like huh <laughs> and like a pattern they could look at it so they had a, a uh, baculus but but modern canines don't do they i think so no uh, i don't think that's a good good point it separates them from yeah so they would be, I don't think they would be to. closer to like a bear or a raccoon um genetic mm -hmm. wise that is a really good observation i need to look into i never thought about that i don't think yeah, wolves do yeah. yeah yeah no i don't bear, think they bear, do. bears and raccoons bears and raccoons do, do. So that, yeah. would, that would put them closer genetically to them, which is still crazy that they were so aggressive. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, I don't know exactly what it was, but it, it's, um, I think the leading answer hypothesis to it was, it's just like aggressive mate, like while mating, they would get attacked by another one, which would break it. And then they'd like, you know, um, that's why they're not the, the best scenario, not the best way to go. <laughs> But yeah, but <laughs> broke, damn, they were going at it. Back, it why they would extinct. <laughs> Probably <Yeah>. do, yeah. <laughs> but I still remember seeing that. <laughs> that's, that's nuts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, David, you just uh, jogged my memory about a recent uh, post you had made, and I really wanted to actually ask you about this on this podcast. Sure. Um, you said something to the effect of how. Um, you know, humans did play a role in the extinction of many of the megafauna. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and, and I totally and completely agree with you. And um, one of the things that I was like, I didn't see that you had brought up, but there was the, um, maybe you had heard about this. There was um, skeletons and a find of like 13 mammoth that were like killed all in this big, like they, they, I think they've said that it was like a big laid out chase that probably happened over the matter of like a day or two days or something. Hmm. But, but where there was like all these mammoths killed. And then finally, like the big one was killed at the end, but they killed an entire group of mammoths. And then that to me was like kind of a signifying thing. Like, okay, yeah, we're, we're way better at killing than we give ourselves credit for. So I just wanted to give you space to elaborate on like that and the whole notion that like, no, we're just innocent and we didn't do any of this. And, you know, it was all just like a meteor. Yeah, <laughs> it it's one of those political three way things that I just being in the middle of it, see all of it. There's the push that humans, you know, aren't that we're not meant. What's the word? I don't think people actually think like humans didn't hunt. We're not supposed to eat meat. So therefore we couldn't have 
killed all those animals, but I'm sure some people have that thought. Um, I have indigenous colleagues who perpetuate the idea that, you know, they didn't kill everything and they didn't, they harvested everything to, you know, whatever the, the phrase is, used every bit of it that they could kind of thing. But then I have other indigenous colleagues that are archaeologists. They're like, no, like, then what would you be digging up if they used all of it? Um, <laughs> and then, <laughs> um, like those bison jumps, like there's no way you're getting every bit of like some of its waste. Like <laughs> you just can't not. Um, so there's that aspect to it. And then the meteor or the impact hypothesis is like super popular because of uh, Graham Hancock and like other scientists. Uh, I guess he's an author, but uh, that's just kind of the catch all kind of like how the dinosaurs died out. Oh, that's what did it. Yeah. But like. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't, which if the meteor came, if humans were hunting, and in my opinion, it's just the climate, clearly the climate was going crazy at that point. A meteor is not going to help. And then humans isn't going to help either. And people will say like, well, there's no way humans killed all of that. And my thing would be like, well, when humans show up to Australia, everything dies. When humans show up to New Zealand, <laughs> everything dies when humans get to siberia everything dies when humans got to madagascar like i said everything dies. it's like interesting yeah. <laughs> but no it's climate uh so my like conspiracy theory on that is that like humans especially in north america when they got here there's diseases that we have that are just completely foreign to the continent and then you have a dog coming with you too and we're sharing all those parasites and diseases Clearly, that probably played a factor too. I don't think it caused a twenty-eight days later situation like overnight, <laughs> mm-hmm. but like, it, I'm sure it didn't help. So I, to say all that, I don't understand why people are so entrenched in it being one thing. Like all of it mm-hmm. would make sense. It's all gone. So like right. clearly, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, but I, I think with the mammoth thing you're saying there too, like if they killed that many mammoths in one day or you know, a month or a year, that might not be enough to, you know, if you did that every year, it's not going to kill all the population. But if you're killing the bulls and it takes 22 months to gestate a mammoth, like in the womb or whatever, they're going to die out quick. It's not like you pushed everyone off a cliff or killed every last one of them. It doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. So. And then if you're displacing populations of animals, there's going to be just ripple effects of that that make everything go haywire, which seems to be what happened. Yeah. Yeah. Well, how about the fact that there was that um, population of mammoths on that island off the coast of uh, Alaska until like oh, right. 4,000 4, years ago or something? <laughs> Wrangell Island or something like that? Yeah. 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 And, and, and no, yeah, no humans had been there, right? That checks out then. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's Never like, I mean, there's evidence of the Polynesian cultures doing the same thing, right? That's the reason why they island hopped. Um, they they did yeah. almost decimate the resource. And by the time they knew it was depleted, they move on. And then later on, they knew they could come back and wipe it out again. I mean, that's, yeah. there, there's evidence agreed in every, every culture, clearly. And I mean, <laughs> there's that lust for blood and figuring out that we can, we can, work as a community or a tribe together and, and kill more that way and yeah it totally makes sense but like you said the parasites everything else all that i'm sure played a huge factor um yeah i don't think it was just one big bang and bam everything was dead 
Um, right. I think everybody, you know, contributed to all that for sure. That that totally makes sense that way. And like you said, Clay, <laughs> once again, right? No humans, and then humans <laughs> yeah. show up, gone. They're gone. Yeah. It it's just one of those things, and it, it's super politicized in in archaeology. And there's like, not that professors don't talk to each other, but it just some people will die on certain hills and it, it it's just odd and there was a paper that came out two years ago a year ago about how clovis points couldn't have hunted mammoths or weren't effective at killing mammoths and yada yada but then i went out with my friend who this is his study i just helped so not to be biased on that but the first three shots like the shot points we threw from the atlatl like completely penetrated through all the hide and the meat and well, that study was wrong like immediately so it's just it's just weird uh yeah that like people have these crusades they want to go on but I, i'm cool with more evidence coming out saying they didn't but it just doesn't make sense that they every state has clovis points and they were big game hunters and they weren't throwing them into the big game like, they don't want <laughs> their their life's work disproven or you know to to be proven wrong that the what they believed you know but yeah uh, it's interesting because you're talking about the Clovis points and I want to um, get into that for sure. Um, sure. So you guys were replicating points or what were you doing like uh, to, to do this? Did you guys nap them and then, and then use them? And then oh, I, I never actually that. knew the atlatl was, uh, they use points on that atlatl. I, I didn't know. Oh yeah. That, Big time. So let's get into that. Let's talk about that. <laughs> I got to get you guys to get Devin on the show. He, he'd talk about you all day about this, but he's the atlatl guy. Um, I did the study with him. So yeah, atlatls are like a super sophisticated technology, like in a sense, like they're, it's technically a simple machine. It's a lever. So you can sharpen a stick and take another stick and throw it at the, the simplest, most primitive design. But Clovis people had like full on socketing systems with it where they had different like four shafts and they would hollow out the front of it so you could stick one in it and then if you throw at the mammoth or whatever you're hunting it doesn't break the whole dart it just breaks the four shaft but that could so you can pull it out and recycle it um so i'd imagine people had like several maybe not like a bandolier of clovis points which would look fucking cool uh, but like, <laughs> uh just a bag of them that like it just you could re-socket it and use it again and it was it's a really effective system and it only gets replaced by the bow and arrow which was my research i think uh well, i mean i know that was my research but my points too i think the bow and arrow really only replaced the atlatl in north america because of warfare not necessarily for hunting um so the atlatl is super effective and the way that it like wobbles in the air creates what's called spline i think you guys probably know that yep. but um that wobble creates like that giant shockwave. So it doesn't just shoot into something. It wobbles and slaps. And like that creates that huge impact wound. So if six dudes and maybe women too are throwing Clovis points this big on an atlatl, that's at like so many joules of pressure when you're throwing it in velocities, it's going to bleed a mammoth out pretty quick, especially if you get good hits on it. And, uh, I'm probably tangenting now from the original question, but no, no, it's totally cool. Um, so yeah. yeah. So to compound on that, like what's crazy uh -huh. is the, the traditional European boar spears that uh -huh. were a wooden shaft. 
they actually didn't have their points affixed either. They were made to where if the bore, uh, you know, started thrashing or whatever, it wouldn't break the staff, the shaft that it was on. It would just pull away free that the, the huh. point would, and then they could, you know, they'd save that shaft or, or, you know, put another one on and they could spear it again. Same thing. So yeah, it's so kind of exactly cool, like a, adaptation to that. And then like, I actually speared a boar when we went to Texas and did that. And I can firsthand say it is freaking devastating. The amount, like we think a bow and arrow is so effective, right? But, oh. but to see that six inch blade shoved into the cavity of the animal with almost zero resistance because of the mass behind it uh-huh. versus an arrow, which is on average, maybe 400 grains. Right. And yeah. now you're talking like 12,000 <laughs> grains of weight behind it. And the amount of force, like you were saying, it just, it's devastating. The wound channel it makes, it bleeds out within seconds. And then like, just zero resistance to it too. I can't imagine like being able to throw that and heave that through even not that great of a shot because of the fact that it's hanging out of it. Now it's inside as that animal's running away and it's just slicing. You don't even have to hit vitals and eventually it's going to hit vitals or make it bleed, have so much trauma that it just bleeds out within a short distance versus having to like trail it for miles. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> like, that's and no, it's, it's so it's, effective. Honestly, I wish like more states and you don't see it like allowed. But traditional hunting like that, as long as somebody practices and is uh, semi-efficient or at least as efficient as clay is with a crossbow, we'll all be fine. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I, I say that too. Like I, I understand. This is my friend's thing too. He would love atlatls to be legal, but it's you know, you got to be good with them or else it's inhumane. But I was thinking too, like, if I miss with my 30-30, that thing's leg is blown off and I missed its lung. Like, I'm just as bad at that as I am with an atlatl probably. So, like, as long as you get good with it, I imagine, I've never hunted something with an atlatl, but I imagine the thrill of that is pretty good. Yeah. And they're pretty humane in the sense. Like, six inches of penetration within that animal and it's running away. Think of the devastation that's happening inside of there as it's running away and it, that that atlatl is smacking tree limbs or whatever, you know? Like yeah. that is super, super effective. Like you're not you're not even getting the same effect with a rifle round while well, depending on what it is and how well it fragments. But but I mean, mm-hmm. if somebody goes out and shoots like military ball ammo, like a full metal jacket and an animal, yeah. it's just gonna poke a hole in it. It's not you know what I mean? There's people that I know that didn't realize what they were doing at the time or had the wrong ammo with them and shot shot a predator. They were predator hunting and shot it and had to put like four rounds in the thing in order to get it down versus one effective shot with a way smaller caliber. You know, it just it totally depends. And like you said, the same thing, right? If you shoot it in the shoulder, you know, it. but then again, you also have the chance to put another shot in it. I mean, you could carry more than one projectile as well with an atlatl. So, yeah. I don't know. I'm an advocate for it, for sure. Same yeah, thing with I'll Spears. have to get you guys in contact with Devin. I, I've never even thought about, like, just a traditional, like, Robert Baratheon spear going into a board. That would be super cool. Pretty sick. Um, 
I guess that's what you did. Yeah. yeah. Was, was that a cool. Game of Thrones reference there? It was. It was. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the last king I could think of that boar hunted in something I watched, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, I wanted to ask you, um, you know, before we run out of time, yeah. Um, can you, can you, um, maybe like say some stuff on basically like what what was the first dog like domesticated for was it was it like hunting you know like um or like like i like to imagine that we we were using them for hunting or i asked you earlier about food um but i really want to know like you know you you also you've you've talked you've talked a lot about on your um, instagram page you know uh, sheep herding and and things like that as a technology so um that I see is like the pinnacle. It's like this long process, right? Like how do you train something to like, you know, nip at the heels, but not cause that much damage. Yeah. Um, So what, what was the original dog used for? And, um, you know, was it like uh, something, you know, good boy and they gave it rubs, you know, (laughs) 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 my, answer to that would be like dogs or a wolf's primary thing that it does is it's a wolf it hunts and it does it really well in a social setting Mm -hmm. so i i think just off the bat what a wolf does is or a domestic wolf helps people hunt and not that they um until they started taking them and selectively breeding them out of the den and you know making them hunt with them it -hmm. probably was like a commensal thing where the wolves just they knew how to hunt. People knew how to hunt. They probably watched how wolves did it um, and like would hunt the same thing. And it was a mutual like, okay, the humans aren't going to kill us if we don't run at the carcass and steal it first. Like they'll give us a cut. And mm-hmm. in that sense, I think hunting, but pretty soon after, you know, we have like a, we are raising dogs and they're part of society that I'm sure the first thing that they were doing was going out and hunting and searching for things or treeing things or, Mm-hmm. Uh, anything like that but then on top of that which i don't know if this would be mutually exclusive from hunting but just guarding and being around camp at night just being a mm-hmm. sentinel is the number one thing because wolves can mark their own territory and then once those human territory and wolf territory combines into one other animals aren't going to want to come near it as much i'd imagine or wolves would do the defending of that more than humans had to worry about it i guess um, mm. Uh, and that probably comes with that. But if not, that was probably the first thing. Just their presence being around helps humans exist better. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, I I do have another question. Um, the uh, the dog the dog human connection seems to be pretty strong, and I I will say firsthand that um, I have been you know noticing like little changes in me like since i got this dog i just feel i I feel like a weird kind of like avatar like connection it's just like weird right it's like i got this little buddy i um he's a puppy right now so he doesn't know how to hunt yet i've been taking him out in the woods i carry my 22 with me he's a squirrel dog you know and um you know i'll just go out and walk around with him and see what he does and uh he's not there yet he's not like treeing squirrels or anything but um I'm just like endlessly fascinated with how my brain is like, I, I'm just like focused on him and I'm like, what is he doing? What's he sniffing? And then I, and I can, um, our connection, you know, like I show him a, a, 
a, a, a track and I point to it, you know, mm -hmm. and I could, I could see it with my eyes and I know that he can't see it because like he doesn't smell it, you know, and I show him that and then he smells it and then all of a sudden he sees it, you know, right. <laughs> and, and he starts following that scent and I'm like, wow, we are like such a good, you know, pair bond like uh you know like humans and dogs and um yeah that that like avatar like connection is pretty cool um and what do you think about that i mean what is with us why do we like that <laughs> i i was gonna say exactly what you say man like when i'm in the woods with my dog and i don't even hunt with them i just i can see a deer uh before he does and so it's funny when he doesn't see it sometimes but I know for a fact, like he sees things by smelling or hearing it before mm -hmm. I do. And if yeah. he stops and like, if he's smelling something good or he's eating something and he stops to look up, I know there's something mm -hmm. and I'll look and then kind of scan around and like, there's an elk way out there that he clearly heard. And it's, it's like a superpower. It's cool. Yeah. So like uniting those two, it's a sixth sense, like a sixth sense, I think. Cause you're, I mean, we have sight sound or hearing and uh smell but they do it better so it heightens that for us and like it's just an extension of of that so yeah exactly the same i think like he just smelling that i don't know it's just a cool uh like the remora fish that hang out on those manta rays like it's just like a joint animal thing that is not really separable yeah, yeah. it's cool symbiotic that's the word symbiotic yeah. yep yeah. So Luke, are uh, you gonna get a dog? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. He doesn't, he doesn't want to get a dog. Um I am the no. lone wolf. <laughs> <laughs> um Fair. the the uh the Hadza, they they have the um what you were just describing a minute ago. That that's kind of like what it reminds me of, right? Like they have all these dogs they run around with. I think they just go hunting, like not for any specific thing. They're just like, we just want to eat meat. Um, and they have these packs of dogs that aren't bred for any purpose at all. They just kind of run around and they catch a scent and then the humans go, let's follow them. And everything I've heard about hunting with Hadza is it's like running a marathon every single day. I have a post about, I've been to post that uh, recently too, or repost it, but yeah, it's a guy, some YouTuber goes around and like hangs out with the Hadza and he asks them, I think the video is like asking hunter gatherers questions about life. Um, and he asks about like God and stuff like that, but he asks some um, and just other life questions uh, and like love and stuff. But he notices they have a lot of dogs, and he asks them like, "Is there any animal you don't eat?" And he said they don't eat dogs. And then he followed up with that, and he said like, "What do dogs mean to you?" And the Hadza guy was explaining like, you "Just we can't eat without them. Like they <laughs> they get the baboons, they get the hyenas. It's the hyenas will eat the dogs, but they'll warn us that there's a hyena." um before you hear it and just the way he said it so when I mean, there's the cultural barriers with it but so nonchalantly like yeah it's just you need them like it was just cool hearing that from a an existing hunter-gatherer yeah yeah um that guy i i saw that clip that you posted actually and um funny enough that's mike Corey, and um i filmed a tv show with him once okay so you do know that <laughs> Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I uh Mike Corey is a really cool dude. Um actually pretty genuinely nice and um travels all over the world, does all kinds of crazy stuff. I mean, I, that that was just one thing he did was going to the Hadza, you know, but um Yeah. Yeah, if you follow that guy, you should or if you don't follow him, you should. 
I, uh, I'll do that. Mike Corey, you said? Yeah, Mike Corey on uh, on Instagram. He's known as Fearless and Far. Ah, uh, yes. Ah, uh, yes. I remember yeah, that. Okay. Did that. I could never watch the full episode, though, because it was on, like, the Weather Channel or something. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. It's, yeah, this guy. Yeah. So um, what, one thing I really appreciate about Mike Corey is that he, um, when you watch him, he goes to a different country, right? And um, they're oftentimes, like, he's in Africa, right? And they're they're eating things that are just like filthy and people just grab, everybody's grabbing in the same pot with their, with their unwashed hands. And I love, I love that he doesn't have like some sort of weird, ew, you know, right. <laughs> he just goes, ah, I'm just going to eat in with him. You know? One in Rome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's cool. No, I'd love to chat with him at some point about that. Very cool. Very yeah. Dogs. Um, I can't think of any other hunter gatherer people that went and studied with dogs but i just know like it was interesting reading about dogs that uh like for my graduate stuff that the spanish the english like they did they did mention it i just never really asked like to what extent um and that yeah like columbus i think brought a dog or two or he noticed that the taino had dogs um and i remember like just it being a thing so it, it humanized the people better um yeah in a sense which i think is a, a dog is the way to do that so I mean, like yeah. culturally was there preferred breeds like uh, that were very distinct in in certain cultures uh like in just world history yeah like throughout history like mod, even you know semi-modern um you know yeah was, was there anything that stood out egypt and like the middle east is where the saluki and the greyhound comes from so everything was pretty slender for like hair hunting in the desert and i know like they bet on it and stuff in mesopotamia and all that um and then chinese dog like chow chows and sharpays and what's the other one not shih tzu uh i think chow chow they're like a very old breed so they were always like a royal dog um and then mastiffs were always for war that was like a big thing the molossian hound i think is um alexander had a few of those no, for for just, war though, what were they? I mean, the primary purpose, like uh, hunting humans, or uh... Uh, to my knowledge, yeah, they were just fought, but they mostly, like, I think, protected the, uh, like the, not the general, I guess, but they just always the war commanders had big war dogs with them, whether mm-hmm. it was for intimidation or they were protection. I'm not sure, but they had armor sometimes, and I know the Spanish dogs. The big mastiffs and the three conquista, they used them as soldiers for sure. And they brought them <laughs> here too. And like That's there's <laughs> Spanish chronicles of like them fighting in Tenochtitlan, like with the giant mastiffs and stuff, which is wild. <laughs> but yeah. Wow. wow. Wild to me in the sense that you are wearing all that giant plate mail armor marching from Veracruz to Mexico City and all of that jungle and mosquito weather and then you're making the dog do it too (laughs) it's like (laughs) yeah it's like wow (laughs) um yeah i think and in terms of like we talked about before just status like there's just always you know it's like royal families always have a dog like a little lap dog or something sitting there you're they always have a fancy dog breed kind of thing it's just Mm -hmm. interesting and then one thing i always love too and I want to talk more about this in future stuff, but every apocalypse movie, always a dog. Or apocalypse always story. A dog. 
And it and I am legend it's cool because it's a plot device for rather than him talking to himself for two hours, you he's talking to the dog, which we understand mm-hmm. as an audience, but then he only tries to kill himself like after his dog dies. So like it's like interesting. He loses his humanity in that sense. But then in um the road in the movie, at the end of it, the kid knows the people aren't cannibals because they have a dog. They would have eaten the dog already. <laughs> um and then just that and then uh terrible i never movie. played fallout the those road games. terrible it, movie dude, way better book. you gotta step outside oh yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> i actually haven't read the book um i've heard it's rough but yeah <laughs> it's, it's better better than the movie though i don't know okay but yeah i just remember watching the movie i have to be like oh man i got it it's a vitamin d <laughs> um and there's another one too oh the a boy and his dog that's like an old movie uh but the whole plot of it is the dog helps him find weirdly helps him find women in exchange for food but it's just like an old apocalypse movie and there's other anyway i'm going on a tangent but, I, but then again it's just interesting not even apocalypse yeah. movies you've got john wick obviously the bond of his, him and his dog was so strong that he went on the Very spree strong. that he did um <laughs> you know first wife then the dog i guess but anyway they killed his dog yeah. <laughs> and then uh and then you uh, old yeller right classic tale True. of the bond of a you know a human and a and a canine old yeller wonderful marley movie. and me which i never saw but um I, I know that's just the one where the dog dies so i haven't watched it but <laughs> <laughs> um yeah it, it it's just a big big thing um i can't really describe it any other word than that so the, the human and dog thing it's a Part of being human, I guess, is how I would describe it. Yeah. It, yeah, sure. Seems like it. Um, do you have uh, any idea which is better, um, strong discipline or treats? <laughs> I will give you the answer I give to everybody on this. There is there's the way I train my dog, who is uh-huh. 100 pounds and bred to hunt elk and moose, uh, who's trying to be a suburban house dog. Mm-hmm. One way works better than another. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it doesn't say it works better than another. One's One way doesn't exactly work by itself. Uh, but what I'm getting at is the most aggressive and toxic people on the internet I have come encountered with since doing this are force-free dog trainers. They will DM me and tell me like, you know, as a scientist, you should really X, Y, Z and send me like a bunch of studies on how wearing a prong collar makes me, you know, Joseph Goebbels or something. And then like, I'm not, <laughs> that's probably way too extreme, but uh, <laughs> just saying like, it, it, it's intense. Like they're just very aggressive about being force free. Uh, <laughs> it's like a strange thing. Um, but I... Oh, I got, I got what you say. You're saying force free, as in like don't ever use any. Yeah, The positive reinforcement people are, aren't very positive, is what I'm getting mm. at. Um, uh, but I can see why, if you're that, you know, adamant of it's like, if you think any negative reinforcement to the dog is abuse, then I can see where you're coming from. Um, mm-hmm. But my dog is a hundred pounds. Like I'm gonna have a prong collar on him, but when I'm in public, because if he bites a kid, like yeah he's gonna die so like i'm not gonna (laughs) in that sense i think a little bit of reinforcement negatively is good in the positive in the long run 
but yeah. I'm not like whipping my dog. I think that's what people think some people do, but um, yeah. And yes, the shock collars and the e collars and stuff, people, if you use them the right way, I think they're a great tool. But I think mm-hmm. some people just shock the dog when it barks and that's that's not okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyway, that was my my answer to that. But well, um, I I've got this uh I got this puppy and I've had I've been pretty disciplinarian with him, you know? And yeah. uh I, I've been pretty um my family is telling me I've been unnecessarily hard on him. Like I, I don't allow him in the kitchen. I don't allow him on my bed. You know, I'm like, so uh, you're, you're an authoritarian but, type rather than authoritative. Yeah, you need to be a little yeah, yeah. authoritative <laughs> with, um, with the dog. But, yeah. But I, um, but I, uh, at the same time, he's like becoming one of the most well-behaved dogs that everybody encounters. You know, I, I actually had a, uh, so I'm self-employed in my day job. Right. And uh, the other day um, I told him sit and stay. And he sat behind me at this, um, at the door of the garage at this house I was working on for like 15 minutes straight. And the lady actually comes out and she goes, how did you do that? (laughs) She's like, he's not on a leash or anything. And I said, I don't know. I said it sternly to him. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Kind of dog is he? He is a feist. So he's like a little, like a, yeah. Yeah, a little tiny like squirrel dog. Okay, I have to look at a picture of that. But um, yeah, I there's the whole thing like I said, the breeder, the breeder, the trainer, kind of like that. I just personally, it can get into a million. You know, where'd Zoom go? There it is. Things with that, but generally, I think dogs, just like people, have their own personalities. And yeah. of the litter that my dog came from, he's misbehaved in some ways, but he's very obedient. He's the most obedient of the the litter that like the people I keep in contact with. Mm-hmm. Um, and I am pretty good with training him. Like, I, I mean, I slack sometimes, but he's a lot of this, dis- not discipline. He's a lot of training, uh, but he's got a mind of his own. He's his own animal. And mm-hmm. like, he's more behaved than they are. Uh, but some of them too are like, one of the dogs is more just sleepy and cuddly, whereas he is not. But I tried to force him to be when he was younger and he didn't like it. <laughs> so like, it's not like he won't he won't sleep in my bed. He always sleeps at the, the floor or he'll pace around the hallways at night. But the other one will sleep in the bed with the owner and like they all have their own uh personality. So just like people, yeah. like my brother and I are very different people. Uh, mm-hmm. but we had the same parents who had the same discipline. So it's yeah. just interesting. So you lucked out is what I'm saying. Your dogs, yeah. and I'm sure you're doing a great job. Uh, yeah, some dogs are just not, <laughs> not trainable sometimes. Or there's behaviors you have to avoid. You know, if they don't like kids, don't force it on dogs to try to be good with kids. Just get them out of a situation where there's kids, I think is mm. the way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so uh, yeah, so um, we're obviously we're coming up on a uh, probably somewhere in the neighborhood of an hour. Um, okay. I want to get I want to give you some space to just say where everybody can kind of find your um, material, you know, YouTube, Instagram, all that. Yeah. Um, Instagram is probably my most active platform, which is ethnosynology. Uh, I can't even spell that myself. But if you just look up my name, David Ian Howe, you'll find that. Uh, my YouTube is what I'm trying to grow the most. And then I have a TikTok, which is my biggest following, but it's the one I use the least. Um, <laughs> it's mostly the stuff I just put on Instagram, I put on there. But uh, I enjoy TikTok, which is, I don't 
spend as much time on it. Um, I like the active community on Instagram, but yeah, TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, and then I have a Facebook that goes with my Instagram, but I don't mess with that really. And then, yeah, that's uh, about it. Got a website where you can find all that stuff too. What's the website? What is your YouTube? Yeah. Uh, DavidianHow.com. Okay. And what is your, what is your YouTube called? Uh, David Ian Howe. Oh, yeah. okay. Nice. Yeah. And yeah, your 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 primary focus is I'm I'm assuming you know the dogs, the hunter gatherer stuff, and then also I, I noticed that you did some um, caveman stand up. Yeah. Of- <laughs> uh, I do stand up quite a bit actually. I just don't post about it because I don't oh. I don't post a lot of it because I don't want like how would I describe this? If some people that follow me for the dog and the stone tool stuff don't find the comedy, it's just gonna be weird. So I'll wait yeah. till like I'm good and then I'll start <laughs> posting. <laughs> um, but I do like doing that because it it's a way to like work on material and jokes. And then I kind of treat lecturing like doing stand up. It's like a performance. So mm-hmm. like if, if things it's just funny what works really well in a lecture and what works really well at an open mic. Um, but when I combine them and they do well, I, I like that. So it's fun. Um, so who's your favorite comedian? Oh, man. Uh, I have lots. I'd say Tim Dillon. Uh, I mean, Dave oh. Chappelle would be my yeah. my number one. Um, Louis, uh, but of the new guys, Tim Dillon. And I did a podcast with um, Giannis Pappas about dogs, actually. No uh, way. Yeah, it was it was interesting. <laughs> uh, and then yeah, Theo Vaughn, like him a lot. Um, oh, awesome. <laughs> Bad friends is good. Yeah. Mm, yeah. <laughs> i love comedy podcasts (laughs) yeah me too man um i'm i'm pretty i'm pretty into it in fact um my 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 13 year old son uh, really likes shane gillis so this morning i was driving him to school i was driving him to school and we were watching that new bit about uh george washington yeah uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. so six foot redheaded giant (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah. Yeah. I, i love comedy yeah, that's awesome. But anyway, man, I uh, I I really appreciate it. I'm sure uh, Luke really appreciates you coming on too. Um, and uh, I hope in the future, you know, you you get a lot of success in your in your stuff. I I find it fascinating, and I hope that people that are listening will also go and check you out and find it fascinating. I appreciate that, man. Yeah, I'll be sure to share this stuff. This is one of my favorite ones I've done so far. So appreciate it. Awesome. That's yeah. cool. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for coming on. Yeah. Thanks for having me. And um. Yeah, I got to get you in contact with uh, Devin. You guys would have a great conversation, I think. For sure. Um, he actually hunts, and he's an archaeologist. But uh, yeah, no, this is great. I appreciate it. All right, All right. Thanks. Once again, thank you so much for listening to the Publicly Challenged podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please subscribe on whatever platform it is you're listening to. Also, if you could leave a review, that would help us out. And you could check us out on Instagram or at publiclychallenge.com. And once again, thank you so much for listening to the show.